T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, WTIC-FM and WTIC.com. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning and we are pleased to be joined by Karen Jarmok, Chief Executive Officer with the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. One statistic I saw right off the bat that was rather striking was that Connecticut domestic violence shelters are operating at 122% capacity statewide every day. And that is, in fact, down from where it once was. Yeah, so shelters in Connecticut, there are 18 domestic violence agencies uh, in communities offering help to victims 24-7. And they have been providing uh, services and help to victims and their children Uh, at a rate that is 122% capacity all the time. So a lot of people say, well, what does that mean? Uh, What are you talking about? And so what we mean is they used to be at 125% capacity. And basically, uh, because of the need uh, for safety for families, uh, there are families staying on airbeds and in family rooms and uh, children's playrooms in order to accommodate the need. And it's for two reasons uh, in particular. One is there are, the needs are very complex. And so the needs of survivors uh, in order to transition them to safety are, are very uh, complicated often. And so it's how do we do that? Uh, and, and it takes time to do that. And the other piece is housing, which is our next, I know we're part of our conversation is the uh, the availability of sustainable housing options. That is a perfect segue into a new partnership that your organization has developed with the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness, helping survivors of domestic violence find a safe place to live. And we have to underscore safe. Absolutely. And so, as you can imagine, when someone enters a domestic violence shelter, for many people, it means that they suddenly become homeless because they're leaving their uh, home environment for safety reasons, but it also has some uh, housing implications, right? So uh, we partnered with the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness more than five years ago to develop some strategies where we can be working collectively around housing survivors of domestic violence, especially those in domestic violence shelters. But it also means that there are some people not in shelter who need housing options, safer housing options as well. And so without getting too deep into the weeds, there was conflicting guidance uh, between our two federal agencies, us, it's the Office on Violence Against Women, for uh, CCEH, it's it's HUD, uh, and they were not allowing us necessarily to work together. And so what we did is we just found that unacceptable, uh, and we decided to forge a partnership and a collaboration that has actually yielded some very strong results. This has turned into a national model. It has turned into a national model. So. We obviously checked in with both our federal funders and national technical assistance providers to query them on the um, acceptability of our our model um, along the way, and we definitely piloted the approach. um, And 
uh, have been offering uh, webinars and a white paper to the National uh, Domestic Violence Housing Network uh, around this uh, way to house survivors of domestic violence and their children in a way that maintains their confidentiality and keeps them safe. To date, you have assisted dozens and dozens of households in, in finding a place to live. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in just the first 18 months of this new approach, uh, 73 households, including 28 individuals and then 48 families, have received housing. Just to give you an example around the confidentiality, because as you can imagine, for a victim of domestic violence, the confidentiality is paramount. And so, um, there's various questions that are required by HUD, but we worked around it in that. A victim of domestic violence might put on one of those queries uh, three bedrooms. Instead of saying parent, uh, adult and three children, they might just say three bedrooms. And that helps to provide some ambiguity around um, who this individual is. Walk us through how the pipeline really get, gets started when, when people need this sort of assistance. So the way that it works in Connecticut is there are, in communities, every community across the state, there are regional, what we call uh, coordinated access uh, uh, entities that are meeting regularly. And that's just, that's not around just housing victims of domestic violence. It's around individuals and families who have housing insecurity in general. And so these uh, groups get referrals from, um, from the CT boss, which is the Connecticut Balance Estate around housing. Uh, and it's their role to meet uh, as a multidisciplinary group to talk through who is at, uh, who has the greatest need, uh, what's the availability. So when housing becomes available, how do you place these families? And so what we um, did not necessarily anticipate, but what has happened is there's just this really great collaboration that's taking place out in the field between domestic violence advocates and housing advocates, where they understand a lot better around where each um, uh, is coming from in terms of their experiences. Uh, and it's it's showing. I mean, we're we're actually housing families of domestic who are impacted by domestic violence at a rate higher than other families. Uh, and I think that has to do with the risk piece. But um, it's just really been a, a, a great work in progress. We continue to meet and hone in on how do we make this better. Uh, but we're really pleased with with the impact that it's having thus far. What sort of demand do you see? Is there a waiting list? Is there a way to prioritize people who, who need housing based on, on need or how many people are in their family, things like that? Yeah, so we know that there's absolutely not enough housing currently in the state of Connecticut for all of the families and individuals who are housing insecure. Having said this, the state um, has actually uh, invested in housing options and access at a much higher level than most other states. So I think that's really important to note. So there's been a lot of work done on creating uh, more resources and more housing availability, um, but it's an ongoing process where um, there's uh, people have to go through what's called the CAN, the Coordinated Access Network, in order to be considered. And there's a lot of you know paperwork and questions involved. And I think that's where the challenge came for us working with victims of domestic violence because a Due to confidentiality, a lot of that we couldn't have going into a public database. And so it doesn't have to do that, but it certainly doesn't bar people from getting housing. You mentioned confidentiality. What other protections are in place to ensure the anonymity of survivors of domestic violence? Do you mean around housing or just in, in general? In general, yeah. So the Violence Against Women Act offers very strong uh, federal protections for victims of domestic violence. So 
In our state, there are nearly 400 advocates who are what we call certified. So they've gone through a certification process. And by state law, that provides them with um, protect protections and confidentiality for the victim. So um, it's important for individuals to know that if they call a hotline or they have a counseling uh, session or if they're getting helped in court, criminal court, or helped with a restraining order, that is fully confidential by federal law. And that's really important for survivors because, as you can imagine, the retaliation associated with uh, the abuser finding out that they were seeking help uh, can be really brutal. And so we're uh, really cognizant of the the factors that confidentiality offers to victims and are just always working to ensure that it's in place. With that in mind, one of the things that the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence is doing is trying to improve and enhance access for survivors. Sure. So we've done a lot of work this past year uh, working with the Office on Violence Against Women and the National Resource Center, a technical assistance advisor uh, through those entities uh, to help us uh, talk with advocates and survivors about their needs, uh, what works well, what doesn't work well, how did that phone call go, how is it when you're an advocate and you're answering the phone and trying to help one in the sh- help someone in the shelter, and then you also have a call where you've got to get someone at a hospital, right? So we wanted to understand what does that look like and how do we make it better? How do we make that experience better and the outcome better? And so uh, we're beginning to pilot and, and uh, test uh, other uh, points of access, such as texting or emailing, uh, that are being used in other places in the country. So this isn't completely new, and we can learn from those. Um, and then how do we uh, create a more uh, coordinated system so that advocates can do the advocacy and not always be pulled in so many different directions, which keeps them away from serving victims as they hope to. When you think about domestic violence, you you might think that you know the first call is to the police, but it doesn't necessarily go that way, does it? No, I mean, honestly, domestic violence, even it is a crime in the state of Connecticut and across this country, but uh, for various reasons, victims uh, predominantly do not reach out to police. Um, for some, and, and, and that's okay. I mean, victims need options. Not uh, every option uh, is going to work for the same person, that, or for different people, right? So um, some people, for some people, calling the police is really critical. Uh, And we have this incredible lethality assessment model that we use statewide that is the only, uh, Connecticut's the only state in the country using, where law enforcement is doing a risk assessment right there at the incident, offering to put victims who are at high risk. We know that in 73% of the circumstances, they are rating at high risk on the phone with an advocate. That's huge. Uh, But for some people, they may want to pursue uh, safety through the civil process and go to the court and get a restraining order. And there are advocates in place to help them do that. So it's really dependent on what works best for a particular person. And their safety plan uh, is unique to their needs. What advice would you give someone who has to face domestic violence? Certainly, if they're in immediate danger, that is you know, a 911 call is warranted, but it seems in, in households, sometimes there's an escalation over time and you, you might not know that you are in the danger that you might be in. You make a really good point. I think for many, many victims of domestic violence, they don't necessarily view their circumstance as, um, as uh, at risk as it might be or as dangerous as it might be. Um, and they don't always Uh, There's various reasons why they're fearful to reach out for help. Uh, And um, before I say what I'm going to say, I just think it's important to make note of the fact that for many, many victims, 
They may love this person. They may have children in common. They may be financially dependent upon this person. They just want the violence to stop. They don't necessarily want the relationship to end. They want the violence to stop. And so for us, a lot, of, a lot more often now, we're talking about how do we talk about the violence and how to reduce the violence on the offender side, as opposed to putting that on the victim to get out. Does that make sense? Uh, because we know that in many circumstances, for various reasons, victims are staying. What I would recommend is that they reach out to a domestic violence program. There's a statewide hotline, which is 1-888-774-2900. And that, it's fully confidential. Uh, it's 24-7. And these advocates are very well trained around how to listen and create safety plans and talk to someone. There's no, um, because you make the call, there's no agencies that's going to know that you make that call and there's no obligation on the victim to do anything other than make their own choices. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking with Karen Jarmok. She is the chief executive officer with the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Recapping the recently completed legislative session, two legislative wins for your organization. One has to do with dual arrests. The other has to do with a surcharge on the marriage licenses that are issued in Connecticut. Uh, Why don't we start with a dual arrest? What's changing? So there's a really important change that's going to happen effective January of 2019. And uh, Connecticut has long uh, been recognized uh, actually for 30 years as a state having the highest dual arrest rate in the country. And what that means is that in 20% of the circumstances, on average, when law enforcement was going to the scene of a family violence incident, because of the way the law is written around mandatory arrest on probable cause, they were arresting both parties. And so, as you can imagine, uh, with a national average of 3 to 7%, um, it really uh, was concerning to us and, and many other policymakers that Connecticut was seemingly arresting people who didn't necessarily need to be arrested. So, we actually looked into this last summer and fall and uh, discovered a lot of things in that um, in these dual arrest cases, the uh, sort of alleged victim um, is is actually being arrested, but on very low-level, low-risk charges. Uh, And um, and that at the higher level, the offender is at a much higher risk charge. But what we knew is that 25 states in our nation have something called dominant aggressor language, and that requires law enforcement to identify the dominant aggressor in these circumstances. And uh, so we pushed for that language to be incorporated into Connecticut's family violence law, and it was legislatively done this spring. With a dual arrest rate so much higher than so many other states, is it just the law or is it law enforcement saying, well, maybe I'll arrest both parties for their safety or for the safety of you know, children involved? Well, I think it was. it's for a few reasons. Uh, definitely the mandatory arrest on probable cause, which was enacted after the Tracy Thurman incident more than 30 years ago, was lending itself to law enforcement having a feeling that they had to make an arrest. I'll give you just a very quick example. Uh, a woman is sitting on the couch. There's a history of domestic violence. He is starting to get angry. Uh, he starts to come toward her. She's on the couch. She throws the remote to sort of stave him back. And he takes an iPad and whacks her across the face and breaks the iPad 
in half. Um, they are both arrested in that case, potentially, because uh, she threw the remote. Um, with the dominant aggressor language, it allows law enforcement to determine who is the most dominant aggressor, right? Um, and so, and that is that is actually guidance that is offered through the Office on Violence Against Women as a best practice. Uh, and so, I think that law enforcement was really had their hands tied around the mandatory arrest on probable cause, and this will alleviate that, hopefully. Is there any education that has to occur between now and January when this change takes effect? Sure. So I think that's why the bill uh, has a a six-month rollout, because there obviously has to be training. We would welcome the chance to be involved in that. We have a director of law enforcement services, but there are national models to use. But certainly, the occasion for law enforcement to be trained on this new approach will be critical, uh, because it is different. Uh, and my sense is that is happening over the summer and fall into the early winter to prepare for the January start date. I would assume that the dominant aggressor is most often a male, but not always? Yeah, you're right. It's most often a male, but not always. So we know that in the majority of domestic violence circumstances, the offender is the male. Uh, It doesn't mean that men cannot be victims, and we certainly in uh, domestic violence agencies across the country and in Connecticut serve men and help men. Uh, So uh, you are correct on that. Now, the, the other piece of legislation was the marriage license surcharge fee, which changes on July 1st, and this helps to fund what your organization does. Absolutely. This was a huge win in that uh, there, uh, when people go to their town hall to get a marriage license, uh, there's a slight uh, upcharge on that fee, and that goes to help uh, domestic violence and sexual assault services out in the field, out in Connecticut. And so there had not been an increase in, I think, 20 years to that. And uh, given the uncertainty around funding with some tough budget years, we uh, tried to get this fee increased ever so slightly, uh, and uh, and it worked. And so um, marriage licenses in the state of Connecticut um, are going to experience a slight increase uh, effective July 1st, and uh, it's going to go from $20 to $35. Um, and that additional amount, I think a dollar goes to the municipality, and the rest is split between sexual assault and domestic violence services uh, in Connecticut. What are your other sources of funding? So uh, we are 95% uh, funded through the state and federal government. And so the Office on Violence Against Women uh, funds various projects around law enforcement and diversity and accessibility, whereas the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Family Violence Prevention Services Act, funds um, our health professional outreach project. That's where we're working with physicians and social workers and nurses around screening patients for family violence. Uh, And then through the Victims of Crime Act, we fund uh, over 70 advocates in both the civil and criminal court across Connecticut, and that's to help victims when there's been an arrest or someone who's trying to get a restraining order. So it's a mixture of funding. We certainly do some fundraising. We have an annual event in the fall called First 100, and we do solicit uh, some private grants as well. You talked about the challenging budget times. Are things better than, say, they were a year ago when we had no state budget? Oh, of. they're absolutely better in terms of, you know, we didn't see, in, in most cases, we saw either um, level funding and or a slight decrease in funding, but at least we have some certainty around funding. I think that was the toughest thing, to go into the fall trying to operate services to victims of domestic violence um, at a time when we just had no real idea around where, if funding was going to come through or not. 
Um, and as you can imagine, there's a lot of planning involved and service provision. And so that uncertainty was tough. So it, that piece is huge for, um, I think, not just the work that we're doing, but so many other organizations out there. And the adjust, adjustments that take effect July 1, any major changes there? No, other than the you know certainty around the budget, uh, the new marriage license surcharge fee, which um, we don't see those revenues. Uh, I think it's twice a year those come through to the providers. And the dual arrest, there's no necessarily a cost associated with that. Um, it's more uh, training and implementation. Are there opportunities for people who want to help survivors to get involved in, in some sort of capacity in terms of volunteering? So each of the provider programs, um, if you go to our website, which is www.ctcadv, they use volunteers. They, some of them use volunteers around host homes. Some of them use volunteers around answering the hotline or helping with uh, programs or helping with restraining orders. Obviously, every volunteer has to go through the certification process. Uh, but uh, survivors often fall into that category where they um, are enough away from the incident and that p- part of their life that they are wanting to uh, empower other survivors. And so uh, it's very common to have individuals who were previously a victim uh, helping then uh, in programs. And I imagine they might be some of the most vocal and passionate advocates. They are in that they have a story to tell, right? And so I can talk all day long, but um, to the extent that there's someone who has experienced this firsthand uh, and who has potentially received help from an advocate and really can articulate to people why that was impactful and how they've been able to uh, move on and be safer uh, is really important. Working with law enforcement, I would gather, is a critical part of helping survivors. How would you say the relationship is with law enforcement community in Connecticut? There's a really strong collaboration between uh, domestic violence programs, advocates, and our organization and law enforcement. Uh, Obviously, we worked for the most part together on the dual arrest language in that bill to try to ensure that it uh, was meeting everyone's uh, expectations and uh, capacity. Uh, and then the lethality assessment model, which is, uh, again, we're so proud that it's we're the only state in the nation doing this statewide. Um, it's really yielded some very great collaborations on the ground between law enforcement and localized advocates. So they, uh, they know each other, first name basis. Hi, this is officer so-and-so. I've got a lap call. I've got to see. It really uh, lends itself to some good collaboration. And so we also work really hard through an Office on Violence Against Women grant to uh, train and cross-train advocates in law enforcement uh, around trauma, around kids at the scene of family violence incidents, um, around um, arrest policies and those types of things. You hear about domestic violence calls in the news, but the stories that make the news, I'm guessing, just scratch the surface. But when an officer is responding to a domestic violence call, they really don't know what to expect or or how things could unfold. Sure. So our understanding is that domestic violence calls are the most dangerous calls for law enforcement to respond to because they can be so volatile and uh, you don't always know what to expect. And so we recognize that and appreciate the work that law enforcement is doing out in communities to keep victims safe and to respond to individuals and perhaps children who are also at the scene of a family violence incident. Uh, And I think that Connecticut should feel proud of where law enforcement is. I think when we talk with our counterparts across the country, we realize just how far ahead we are in terms of the work that we're doing around training and cross-training and lethality assessment 
uh, it's impressive and it's working. Uh, and I just think we need to continue to foster these good working relationships. And again, if you are in need of help, what's the best way to access that help? Just to call the statewide hotline, it's 24-7. It's 1-888-774-2900. Is that staffed by people in Connecticut or somewhere else? Yeah, we're proud of the fact that it is staffed by domestic violence certified advocates here in Connecticut. You're going to get a live person on the phone and someone who can talk with you. The way that it works is the when you call that hotline, it routes you to your most local program. So from wherever you're calling from, it's going to route you to a local program. Uh, and, and so you're not getting a call center. You're not you know being pushed down to Florida. And then um, this is an actual live advocate who's uh, in, in a program. She is Karen Jarmok, Chief Executive Officer with the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.